My high school had a uh, common area, commons, uh, they call it sometimes. I went to a school, it's a, um, a little, little bigger, I don't know, five, six, seven hundred students in the high school. And um, we moved into the, the high school as a freshman, you know, it's like, it's a little intimidating because the bigger, bigger building, things are farther apart. There's lots more people. Uh, all of a sudden, people you don't know or, or don't remember, or who, who don't care to remember you, maybe, is <laughs> the way that goes. And, and in the center of this, of this building, multiple buildings all connected through um, exterior walkways, like covered uh, hallways, and all the lockers were really outside. Um, and in the middle of all of these buildings around on four sides, there was this, uh, this commons area, green grass. It was split up into four sections. And in the center, there was a raised cement um, platform. So we would sometimes have events and things out outside. Students could go out there and eat, eat lunch if they, if they wanted to. And um, it was a really cool place. And, and I remember one, one day, for some reason, I have, I have no idea why, but I was at the school, uh, it was early in my freshman year, and everybody else was in class. You, you remember what it's like being in school, like being in high school when everybody's in class and you're the only one, like in the hall? It's, it's weird, isn't it? Like, it's like ghost town kind of thing, it's crazy. And I don't remember what I was doing there. I'm sure it was good. Uh, whatever it was, but I was there. I was at my locker outside this covered um, walkway and I, I was finishing up what I was doing. I was getting ready to go back to class and I noticed at the end of this kind of hallway and then another thing in the commons was out there um, uh, that the principal walked by. And, you, you know, I, I was a, a kid, it's going to be hard for you to believe, but I, I was a kid who like just, I just obeyed rules. Like I didn't get in trouble. <laughs> I didn't, I, really, I did. I, I just, I just like under the radar, I just, I just kind of like did what I was supposed to do. So it's no big deal. So I didn't, like I was a freshman. I didn't know this principle. I watched him walk by and, and this was, okay, this is the 80s. Okay, so you got to just kind of picture this if you remember the 80s at all. Um, he, he was not like any other principal I had known before. Every other principal that I had had, um, like wore a suit and tie to, to work every day at the school. Th- this principal, he had on dress slacks and, and nice shoes. He wore a dress shirt and a tie. But then over that, instead of a suit jacket, he, he wore a school jacket. Uh, it, it said uh, eagles on the back. It had a big gold eagle, kind of resembling the one, you know, that was on the hood of the, um, w- what was that? The, yes, those. Yeah, uh, my neighbor's uh, friend, his mom had one. Whew, T-tops with a big eagle on the front. Oh, it's a sweet ride. Anyway, he had this big eagle on the back and it was one of those jackets that was kind of little puffy and like shiny, you, you know, like the pink lady jackets from Greece. It was blue and had this big gold eagle on the back of it. And what I'm saying to you is like, he had, he had like this nice trimmed beard. He was a big guy, he was kind of built. Like this was not the principle that you messed with. And, and I remember I was at my locker and he walked down the end of the hallway and I ended up following him for just a few moments, about 20 or 30 feet behind him. I have no idea if he knew I was there or not. I, I don't think he did. But as I followed him, he kind of turned off and walked through the common area. And before I went back into the building and back to class, I noticed that 
Out there by himself with nobody around, he stopped and bent down and picked up a piece of, of trash. And I thought to myself, that's really odd. Number one, he's, you know, he's wearing this suit. N number two, it's not his job to do that. N number three, the piece of trash he picked up was so small that most people, probably including the janitor, would have just walked past it. Like it wasn't even worth his trouble to, to bend down and pick that piece of trash up. We, we've been looking the last few weeks about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of, of God. A kingdom, I, I told you, is a, a kingdom called, we're kingdom of priests and ministers. And a kingdom of priests and ministers whose job it is to lead the rest of the world to know and to follow Jesus. And so what we're talking about in this series is what does it mean to be a part of Jesus' kingdom? And, and how is being a part of Jesus' kingdom different from being a part of, of other groups or other like lowercase kingdoms of the world? And so today, I, as we kind of were hitting part three of this series, and I want us to look at three separate occurrences in the, in the gospel stories, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's biographies, kind of Jesus' ministry and, and life written from four different perspectives. And, and there's three occurrences that happen in the gospels where we're told that Jesus' disciples get into an argument with one another. So Jesus pulls these 12 guys from different places and different jobs and different backgrounds and, and different positions within in, in life. Like we know four of them for sure were, were just fishermen because God like calls them out of the boat that they're in to, to follow him. And um, we know that one guy was a tax collector. So he, he was a Jew who worked for the, the occupying Roman nation. Nobody liked them. He, he made money by the Romans, uh, from the Romans, but he also kept some of the money that he collected in the taxes from his own people. So they were, they were seen as traitors. They were hated. There's another guy that was a part of Jesus' 12 disciples whose name was, was Judas. Or it was not, not Judas, sorry. His name was Simon. And, and in Scripture, sometimes you read him as Simon the Zealot. And so as a, as a zealot means he was a zealot for the Jewish nation. He was really about um, following and keeping per se the laws of, of God, but only as it pertained to Jewish people. So he would protect Jewish people, but you could kill anybody else. Like nobody else mattered. And so th this guy, Simon, he was an anarchist. He, he had no problem hurting people if he felt like it, it elevated or, or supported his cause. And so um, there's some other guys that Jesus called among the 12, and we're not really sure what they did, but the, the, the idea that we need to get is these 12 guys come together around Jesus to form what is, is kind of a, a microscopic picture of what the church is like. People from all over, different backgrounds and different cities. We got Democrats and we got Republicans and all of the independents. And they will all come together, not because we agree about everything, we just agree about Jesus. And so we see in the disciples this, this picture of this bigger church and, and we see over and over again, these 12 guys begin arguing and, and fighting with, e with each other. 
And the first one, it happens early in um, Luke's account of, of Jesus' life and, and ministry. And so Jesus had just like fed 5,000 men plus women and children, so maybe 10,000 people with a, a couple fish and a few cakes of of bread. And then um, Peter and the other apostles come to, disciples come to this point where they, they like finally acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the King, like God's King. Like it's a huge pivotal moment for the disciples as they followed um, um, Jesus. It was this big deal. And then uh, Jesus begins to mention, hey, I'm going to die and, and then I'm going to be resurrected. And, and this, all of these pivotal things happen. And all of this happens with all 12 of the disciples. They're there. They participate in the feeding of the 5,000 and they're, they're there and they all agree that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised um, King. And they all hear him talk about his death and, and resurrection. But then there's this story kind of squashed in there where Jesus takes Peter, James, and, and John. They were the three guys who were, who were closest to Jesus. He spent more time with them than he did with the 12 disciples. And he spent more time with the 12 disciples than he did with anybody, anybody else. So they were kind of like his closest uh, confidants. If, if you want to call them his closest friends, I don't know. And there's a story where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes up on a mountain. He leaves everybody else down. And while they're up on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. And, and we don't really know, we don't really understand what exactly that means, except that the text just tells us that his clothes became dazzling white, like hard to look at. And his face changed and, and it began to, to glow. And, and the idea that is Jesus kind of transforms into the glory that he had before he took on human form and came to the earth. This is this magnificent moment. And just Peter, James, and John um, see this. And then shortly after this event, we get the first argument we're gonna look at in Luke chapter nine. Here's what it says. An argument rose uh, among them as to which of them was the greatest, which of the 12 was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you all is the one who is great. Now, again, Jesus has just healed or just fed 5,000 plus people, women and, and children. And he's been transfigured into his heavenly glory. And he's healed a boy who was demon um, possessed. All of these things happen. And then the disciples begin to argue about who is the greatest among them. Now, now clearly they're not arguing about who is greater than Jesus. Like, like, like Jesus is number one. He's the king. Their arguments were never about that. Their argument was really about who is Jesus number two? Who is the guy who's going to make decisions for the group and tell everybody else what to do when Jesus isn't with us? And we know that Jesus wasn't with them at times. Like he went off on his own to, to pray and there were decisions that need to be made and things that needed to, be hap to, to happen. And they wanted to know who was gonna be the second in command, who was gonna be the guy that was in charge when Jesus left the room. And this is what they argue about. And while Jesus never addresses the, the pecking order of the disciples, he never gets involved in that discussion. They spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. 
And, and we really do the same thing. When you come into a group of people you've never met before, we try to figure out who's the one who's making decisions. Who's the one that's in charge? Who's the one are we gonna listen to? And for this um, argument, this first time that this argument breaks out and we're told about it, Jesus sees this child near them and he brings the child over to him to his side. He's gonna use this child as an illustration. And he, he uses the child because verse 47 tells us that he knew, he knew the reasoning of the disciples' hearts. He knew why they were arguing about who was the greatest. And, and I don't know about you, but I've read this story before and it just, it's odd. Like, why does Jesus pull this child in? And then why, why do he, like, it just doesn't seem to fit unless you take the time to think about this, this phrase. He knew the reasoning of their heart. Like the reason Jesus pulls a child over and uses a child as the illustration is because he knew the reasoning of their hearts. It wasn't just about their argument. He understood what was going on inside their hearts. And so Jesus answers the question they aren't asking. He answers the question they aren't asking, how do we treat those we can't trade favors with? How do we treat people that can't reciprocate to us? Um, this whole, like, I'm gonna scratch your back, you scratch mine. How are we gonna treat people who can't scratch our back? Because in this world, like, that's the way things work. I'm gonna do something for you because I hope that someday you're gonna be able to do something for me. I'm gonna help you because later you're gonna be able to help me and advance my agenda, advance my position and help me improve something about my life. And this is why Jesus uses a, a child. This young child was an example of the least among them. Like this, this child could offer these, these grown men in the society of the day, this child could offer them nothing. He had um, no power, he had no influence. He needed a lot of help as, as a young child, but he couldn't offer much help in, in return. You're like, well, what does a child g give to us? W well, they, they give to us uh, drawings that they're really super excited about, but we can't tell what it is. <laughs> but we put it up on the fridge because they give it to us because they they love us. A child needs a lot, but can't give us a lot besides just this love that they're able to give us. The child wouldn't get them invited to the best parties. The child wouldn't be able to get them a promotion at work. Like this child Jesus brings into the midst of the group could offer the disciples absolutely nothing. And it's why Jesus used a child because he knew their hearts. They were arguing about who was the greatest, who was the greatest among the 12 because they believed Jesus was gonna be king, that he was gonna establish a physical rule on this earth in Jerusalem and he was gonna need people around him. That's what they thought they signed up for. And so to be number two to the guy who's the king is, is a pretty important position, right? If you're number two to the king, you get a lot of wealth, you get a lot of power, you're able to do things that you couldn't do before. It meant power and influence and wealth and status in the world. And this child had none of that. 
And so Jesus wasn't telling us like, we, we shouldn't just go out and host parties for children. And just invite all the neighborhood children over and, 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 and have, a, have a party. That's not really what Jesus is saying. Jesus was saying, the one who thinks of his personal ambitions the least in my kingdom will be the greatest. In, in Jesus' kingdom, the greatest people have the least pride. The greatest people have the least pride, like this child. I mentioned James and John before. They were with Peter and they went up on the mountain and saw Jesus when he was, when he was transfigured. And, and these two guys struggled with pride as we see in Mark chapter 10 is the second argument that the disciples have among themselves. Here's what it says, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, you, you've heard that question before, right? Hey, I want you to do me a favor, whatever I just, you just write me a blank check. That's what they're asking. And most of us be like, no, <laughs> like that's crazy. We know what's coming next. We're not gonna do that. And Jesus says to them though, what do you want me to do for, for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your, in your glory. Now, now we think of heavenly glory. That is not what James and John were thinking. James and John were thinking when you become king, over Israel and you rule all the nations of the world, we wanna be number two to you. One on your right and one on your left. We wanna be your top advisors in your new kingdom. And so verse 41 says, when the other 10 heard about it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them all to him and he said to them, you know that those who, considered, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over others and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see what's, what's going on here. These two guys, they wanna be number two and they're like, well, Jesus hasn't picked anybody. Maybe he'll pick the two of us because we're two thirds of this Peter, James and John thing. And, and maybe this will, will work. Maybe we can kind of tag team this spot and Jesus will, will elevate our position among the other disciples. But then the rest heard about it. And, it, and the word that's used is in, indignant. And if, if you look it up, that word, that word means, means aggravated and it means like moving toward a fight. So when the other 10 disciples heard what James and John had done, they, they, they confronted the two of them. And, and I imagine that they started listing all of the reasons why James and John shouldn't be number two above everybody else and why each of them should be. Like James and John, like you messed it up and you blew that and you didn't do that, but I'm the one that should be. And so they begin to get in this argument, they begin to, to fight and, and Jesus stops them and he uses this well-known observation in the, in the world. He talks about these Gentiles and Gentiles are everybody who isn't a Jew. Okay, so when you see the word Gentile in the Bible, it just means these are not Jewish people. They're not Hebrews, they're not from Israel, they're from another, they're pagan people. And, and he says Gentiles rule in, in a way that, that, that we don't like. like. Like Israel's king was supposed to rule a certain way. And the Gentile kings were not, were not bound by that rule. 
Gentile kings were not known for being kind or for being generous, for doing things for their people. They really were about amassing more for them themselves. You think about Pharaoh and about Nebuchadnezzar and other kings. It was all about building their kingdom, building their empire, building their nation. They made sure others treated them well. Like if you didn't treat the king well, they just put you uh, to death. They, they, were, they bossed people around, but then didn't do anything themselves. That's how those kings function. So, so Jesus tells them that in his kingdom, in, in this new kingdom that I'm going to establish, the boss won't order his servants around. The boss will actually serve the servants. This is unheard of. Why would anybody do that? Like the point of being at the top of the ladder is that you don't have to do any of the stuff that the people at the bottom of the ladder do. You're like, I've done that before. I, have to, I can stop doing that now because I'm, I'm at a different level. I'm above you. I don't have to do that stuff anymore. I've paid my, my dues. These are guys who don't use their power and, and influence, or they use their power and influence for personal gain instead of using their power and influence to benefit others. This is how the, the kings of the world um, treated their subjects. It's completely opposite of, of the way Jesus wanted the kingdom, his kingdom to run. He said those people at the top should serve the people at the, at the bottom. And then instead of trying to build our own kingdom, we need to work to build the kingdom of, of God. And that means building up others' people. And so we might um, say it this way. If you want to be a somebody in Jesus' kingdom, you got to get used to being a nobody in this kingdom. If you want to be somebody in Jesus' kingdom, the key to that is being a nobody in, in this kingdom, doing the things that you think nobody else wants to do, doing the things that you think um, a nobody should do. Like, I'm, I'm a somebody. I've made it. I've passed that rung on the ladder. I don't have to do those things anymore. <clears throat> and Jesus says, no, if you're at the top, you really should be serving those at the bottom. There's one more time this argument rears its head in, in Scripture. Um, and, and according to Luke, it happens on the, the very night that Jesus is betrayed by Judas and handed over to the Jewish authorities. And, and eventually in another day, 24 hours, he's hung on a cross and, and, and killed and then, and then ransoms people by, by his resurrection. He just talked about that in the last passage we, we read. But I want to give you some context to what's happening here, because I, when we read it in the gospel stories, I, th I think we miss it. And so I, I said earlier that you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, and they're all written about the same three and a half year time period of Jesus' ministry, but they're all written from the perspective of each of those individual people. And so just like us today, we, we watch an event, we see an event, and we have two different ideas of, of, of what happened or what was going on to get to the same Result, And so sometimes when we read the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read the same stories, but they don't exactly line up. And, and we think, maybe, well, somebody's missing something. Somebody left something out. No, they're just written from different perspectives. And we have to kind of put them all together to get the full picture of what was going on. And the same thing is true 
of the Last Supper when Jesus comes together. Each of the gospel writers mentions different pieces and parts of what happened that, that night. And in order for us to get a full picture of what actually went on, we have to find a way to put them all together because they don't always put the same events in chronological order. And so that happens in the Gospel of Luke. He, he makes allusion to this third argument that happens be between the disciples, but it's in a place that I don't think it fits as you look chronologically at what happened on the, last, the night of the Last Supper. And so Luke tells us that Jesus sent uh, Peter and John into town ahead of the, the other 11, Jesus and the other 10 disciples. And he told Peter and John to make preparations for the Passover meal that they were going to have um, that night. This was a holy meal. It was sacred. There were specific things that were supposed to be done. It was a specific kind of meal. And, and there were specific um, entrees and things that were supposed to be offered at specific times. And so they had to make all the preparations for that meal. But there was something different about this meal than some of the other meals that they had shared together. And that is nobody else was allowed to be there. It was just Jesus and his 12 disciples. And it makes sense because this is the last meal like this they're gonna share. And Jesus wanted to make sure that, that, that he gave them everything that they needed before he goes to the cross. And so this is a, a very intimate um, moment. Jesus got all these things going on um, in, in his head. And so he sends Peter and John to make these preparations. And, and it's no surprise to me that these two guys were, were probably at the center of every single argument so far about who was gonna be number two in Jesus' kingdom. Peter and John were the guys who were the center of that argument, that they were the ones kind of promoting themselves and jumping in, and probably they're the ones who maybe even started the arguments in the first place. And so when it comes time for dinner, Jesus and the other 10 come to this upper room, we're told. It's in the home of a, of a guy that nobody really knows. And they, they go up and Peter and John, they've prepared the meal. They've got the, the table set up. It was probably a table that was 10 or 12 inches off the floor. And, and, and you would lean on pillows on your left uh, elbow and, um, and, and you would be laying with your feet out from the, from the table. You'd be laying down. And the most important place around that table is the place right in front of the guest of honor, the, the one who gets to hear. Now your back is to him, but you get to hear. He can whisper in your ear. It's a very close and very intimate. And then right behind you is another um, kind of prized position. And this night, John is right in front of Jesus. And right behind Jesus is Judas the one who would betray him. And around the table were set up small dishes with oil and you would, you would reuse your hand and eat with your hand and, and, and there would be these small dishes and a few people would share the dish and you would dip your bread in it and you would eat it throughout the meal. Peter and John came and they made all of the arrangements for the meal except for one. They did not arrange anybody to wash the feet of their friends who would come to dinner. Now, I shared last week that in a, in a Jewish household, 
it, when you came into the house, you washed your feet before entering the home. And there's a really like just very plain reason for that. These people lived in a desert. It was very dry. It was, it was very dusty. There were animals all around. Um, they didn't have proper uh, sewage things and, and, and stuff. And, and they wore open-toed, like just leather, pieces of leather on their, on their feet. And so they stepped in things and walked through things that were just not great. And so when you would come into a home, the first thing that would happen would you'd get your feet washed and it was a gross and disgusting and smelly job and nobody wanted to do it. And that's why they typically made the youngest child who was able to do it, the one who washed the feet in the, in the house. Well, but Jesus and his disciples came to have the Passover meal in, in, in a home that nobody arranged for the washing of feet. Peter and John didn't make arrangements for this. And it's, it's why we talked again about last week uh, online that, that um, Jesus gets up and he washes the feet of his disciples because nobody had done it yet. And I suspect that early on in, in the meal, while they were all around the table, somebody, somebody mentioned, hey, Peter and John, you, you blew it. Like we're here having a, a, a meal and nobody has washed our feet. The preparations weren't made um, for that and it's kind of gross and disgusting. Why didn't you handle that? And then this argument broke out about who, who was, who was going to do it because um, Peter and John should have made arrangements for that. They apparently um, didn't. But let me just tell you, nobody else was going to do it. These 12 guys were jockeying for the number two position with Jesus when he comes into his, his kingdom. It was beneath them all to wash each other's um, feet. And so Jesus is there at the table. He's preparing for his betrayal and his, his death. He's considering all the things that he still needs to share with these 12 men. And he has to deal with this dang argument again. Here's what Luke says in verse 25, chapter 22. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles ex exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? A rhetorical question from Jesus, by the way. Who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? Now, you're like, we heard that before. That's the same thing just about that Jesus said in the last argument that we, we looked at. And, and you're right, it is very similar. It's different, but it's, it's, it's very similar. And I think it's very similar because they didn't get it the last time. They didn't catch it. And I, and I think what Jesus really is saying in this moment is, he's like, look, I'm not just giving you an illustration here. I'm saying you're acting like the pagan Gentile kings. And you're trying to be Lord over everybody else. And that's not the way we're supposed to act. This is not the way my kingdom functions with people scrambling for the best spots. The one who reclines to the table is the one who is greater than the one who serves. We all know that. He says, but I am among you as one who serves. And then I think Jesus got up from the table 
and took off his outer garment and put a towel around his waist. And he did for the 12 what they were unwilling to do for each other. Well, they were arguing about a minute ago, Jesus as the leader and the king, as God gets up and does for them. He even washed the feet of his betrayer. So I wanna leave you with a, a, a thought this morning because to help us understand what this is like, washing people's disgusting feet in Jesus' day was like cleaning public toilets today. If you want a job in the world that is similar to washing feet, it's probably cleaning toilets. If you are traveling and you stop in at a, a gas station, that's not a quick trip, by the way, shout out to quick trip. Uh, they should promote that somehow. Give me a drink or something. Uh, nobody quick trips watching this, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Buster. Uh, it was not a quick trip. You go into those gas stations and, and, and the, some of those bathrooms are disgusting. And, and I don't know if you, about you, but when I'm in there, I often think, man, I feel bad for the employee whose job it is to come in here and, and clean this. And I'll bet that the employees fight over who it's gonna be. And I'll bet it's probably always the newest person. And if you're the newest guy on the crew, you're like, I can't wait for somebody to quit, and bring somebody else on so I can, I can take my step up the rung and dump this off on somebody else because this is a horrible job. Washing feet was like cleaning public toilets. And my question for you today is if the king cleans the toilets, what won't I do? Often remember, the side of my principle, picking up that piece of, of trash. And, and, and honestly, I have no idea what his name was. I don't know that I ever really spoke to the man. Again, there were lots of people in my, in my school, but I remember him every time I've been down and pick up a piece of trash. And I often find myself picking up pieces of trash that would be easy to disregard because they're small. I do it because in 1986, when I was 15 years old, I watched the highest paid guy at my school bend down and pick up a piece of trash when he had no idea that anybody was watching him. If you want to be great in Jesus' kingdom, You've got to get used to being grimy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the son that you sent to be our king who didn't lord over his, uh, us his position, who didn't come to be a king like the kings of the world who were just about amassing more for themselves. But he came as a king for the people. He came to better our situation. He came to lift us up instead of standing on our shoulders. He came to give himself as a ransom for us, for something that we could not ransom ourselves from. 
And Father, too often, we ignore the example of your son. And we look like the, uh, the disciples, way more like the Gentile kings of the world. Father, forgive us for trying to, to jockey for a greater or a higher position, and not just in your kingdom, but in our lives as well. Because the, the way that you have called us to live in the world is according to your kingdom rules, not the rules of the kingdom around us. So according to your rules, we become great when we become nobody. And so, Father, help us to, to remember that. Help us to serve those like that child Jesus used who cannot serve us, who can't give us anything. And help us to look more like your son Jesus every day. It's in his name we pray.